Now, I don't care if it's rival gangs, guardian angels, or the goddamn Salvation Army. Get them off the street and off the front page. They say it was just one guy. Or a creature. <laughs> or some asshole in the costume. Yeah. This guy did deliver us one of the uh, city's biggest crime lords. No one takes the law into their own hands in my city. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you. Down and on and on and on with Batman. <laughs> oh, oh, not that one. Okay. Although we could, we could do our own cover. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. The sequel cast is a podcast that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt. With me is Thrasher. Hello, listeners. And our theme song you just heard is written and performed by Mark with the C. Check out his music at markwiththec.com. And the sequel cast is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Check out other great film and TV podcasts at battleshipretention.com. And we're kicking off a, a franchise chosen by you, the listeners. The one that got the most votes was uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. So this episode, we're doing Batman Begins, which came out in uh, 2005. Which uh, I did not see until this morning. I am shocked at that, Thrasher. As much as you enjoy Batman... Well, that's that's just it. I enjoy good depictions of Batman, and by the time Batman Begins came out, I was so thoroughly burned out on Batman that I had uh, absolutely no interest in this film. So even when, like the the second one, The Dark Knight came out with all the critical acclaim for uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker, you didn't see that one either. I meant to see it, but I never got around to it. So ironically, the first one. Uh, out of this trilogy you saw was the last one, The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, I did see that in the theaters. And now you just saw Batman Begins, which we're talking about this episode, and the one you have not seen yet is The Dark Knight? Yes, that is correct. Gotcha, okay. So, yeah, I mean, this one, 2005, and Batman and Robin was uh, 97. So that's eight years. That's quite the gap. Especially considering how quickly they crank movies out nowadays, absolutely. Well, like Batman and Robin came out only two years after Batman Forever. I believe one of the had Batman and Robin, and Batman and Robin wasn't like a total flop. It's not like it made $2. It just didn't make Batman Forever money. Yeah, well, it wasn't. I don't. It's it's like the the two the two Joel Schumacher Batman films. They both have things I like in them. They're just not what I want in a superhero movie. Right, and and keep in mind, you know, um, the '90s, the X Men films aside, and you know, weren't great for superhero movies. And you did have Spider Man and stuff in the early 2000s, which did very well. Yes, and uh, and I'm still, I am still gonna, I really do enjoy Ang Lee's Hulk. I will admit the killer dogs are some bullshit, but the rest of the movie <laughs> I really like. I have to rewatch that one. You know, I saw that in the theater, and it was, uh, you get all these expectations of what a Hulk movie could do, and that one took quite uh, a left turn, I think, from a lot of people, uh, what they were expecting. I was so happy, though. 
But we're not here talking about the Hulk. We're talking about Batman Begins. Um, I saw this in the theater opening weekend. I had just graduated a college from Savannah College of Design at this time. And I came with a lot of mixed uh, expectations, like you said, coming off of Batman and Robin. And also, like, I knew Batman from the movies, a little bit from the comics. I actually never saw that much of the animated series, uh, the 90s cartoon, surprisingly. It just bits and pieces here and there. So for me, the having the, the main villain of this be Scarecrow and Ra's al Ghul, I recognized Scarecrow, but Ra's al Ghul was all new to me. I had no idea who that character was. Yeah, it, as cool of a villain as he was, he he is really an obscure villain that at the time was only known by diehard Batman and DC Comics fans and uh, fans of the animated series because he, he got a lot of exposure in the Batman animated series from the 90s. You know, I watched a documentary on um, the Batman Begins DVD, and they said there were three comics that inspired them for Batman oh. Begins. What were they? I bet you can guess one of them. Uh, Power Pack by Marvel Comics? <laughs> no, not Power Pack. Um, Batman Year One. Yep. With the Commissioner, which basically should have been called Commissioner Gordon Year One, pretty much with the focus in that comic. Um and that one I have read. Uh, they said the other one was The Lawn Halloween, the graphic novel. Did you read that one? No, no, sadly I haven't. I haven't read that one either. And the third one was a, a story, I think, from the 70s called, I think, is it The Boy Who Falls or The Man Who Falls? I, I have not seen the same documentary, so I'm not entirely sure. But it's about, they saw imagery from it, and you can see it influenced the movie. It's sort of telling some of Batman's origins and him sort of being trained by different people around the world over the years. Oh, yeah, that was the uh, the Man Who Falls. That was a secret origin story. The Man Who Falls, yes, that's what it was. But yeah, I mean, even though the movie's called Batman Begins, it, you do have to wait through, like, half of it before you see Batman. Well, I actually... I, that I liked. I liked that this movie was willing to take its time and... One one criticism I do have of all the earlier Batman films is they shoehorn in his origin story, but it's always his very unsatisfying flashbacks. And I'm very happy that this that this whole film is just his origin story. We should mention uh, we did cover the uh, the '90s Batman films over at SequelCast.com. If you want to take a listen to those, indeed. And we even had Tyler Smith of the Battleship Pretension uh, podcast on as a guest for. I think the 89 Batman and the one about the TV shows and stuff. Uh, wasn't he... Oh, yeah, he wanted no, to I do Batman right. forever and he wasn't able to because he's in love yeah. with the Riddler. Um, but yeah, back to Batman Begins. They do really take their time. I mean, at this point, this is the third uh, Batman film that told his origin story because you had an extended sequence in the 89 uh, Tim Burton Batman film where they had it as uh, Jack Napier, who later became the Joker, is the one that killed Batman's parents, which is something they made up for that movie. Uh, they mention his origin a bit in Batman Forever, directed by Joel Schumacher. And here in Batman Begins, they give that story a bit of a chance to, to breathe, I think. Which was nice. I guess the other thing I liked, I liked that it established his parents and established right. what kind of child he was. And watching this, especially after uh, watching The Dark Knight Rises, I mean, Batman Begins really informs a lot of The Dark Knight Rises. 
Oh, yes. I think, which we'll get into later. So because you're familiar with Ra's al Ghul, did like the plot twist in this film about who's the real Ra's al Ghul throw you off? Uh, absolutely not. I okay. mean, Ra- Ra's al Ghul is a devious motherfucker. And yeah. The, the the fact the fact is and this is actually and this is something I won't say this is a problem because it it didn't it didn't harm my perceptions of the movies at all but you know the moment Liam Neeson shows up oh well that has to be that has to be Al Ghul that's the only guy that can be uh, just like in Dark Knight Rises and I don't give a damn about spoilers I'm like oh like the, the moment uh, Talia gets on screen I'm like oh that's Talia Al Ghul that's the oh. only person that character could be. <laughs> So did you feel the movie did a bad job at predicting who it was, or just because you came in with that comic book knowledge of that the backstory I, of that character? I, I think it is just because I know the I know the character that I know that that has to be Ra's al Ghul. Uh, although you, I I would assume if you didn't know, you could put it together because there's you know there's all sorts of stuff about misdirection and things like that. I think you could figure out that the uh, the Asian guy wasn't actually uh, the real Al Ghul, and the the Asian. Um guy who they mislead you for a while as being Ra's al Ghul is played by Ken Watanabe. He was in movies like uh, The Last Samurai. And, oh, yeah. And so forth. He was, he's, he's pretty good. Um, yeah, you know, it that twist fooled me in the in the theater, and I think it's because, you know, um, before this film, Liam Neeson did stuff like The Phantom Menace and, and played kind of like a mentally role in a few different movies. So he's not an actor you associate being a villain a lot. Although it is nice to see him as a villain. Oh, no, I think he does a great job. You know, it's not like if you would cast, um, oh, I don't know, like Willem Dafoe <laughs> as Ra's al Ghul. I mean, I don't think they'd do that because he was in Spider-Man as Green Goblin. But I'm part of the League of Shadows. <laughs> I'm going to train you, Brucey. Yeah, it's... I'm going to fucking train you. <laughs> I don't Paul Giamatti as Alfred. Uh, God damn it, Bruce. <laughs> That's funny. Um, when Batman begins, with the beginning, it almost feels like you're watching like a an Arctic karate movie. Well, I mean, it is like, it's probably not a beginning too many people expected. <laughs> no, it, it really fooled me. I'm like, I enjoyed it was taking its time on the one hand, but in the theater, I remember thinking, get to the fucking Batman already. But, and you do get these cool, like, um, action sequences, and he has to kind of, you know, do these trials. And I was pleased to note when I rented the Batman Begins video game, it works, I think, with the beginning of the film, because it's very sort of video gamey things he's having to do. As far as uh, getting the flower. and the mountains. Yes. Return with right. seven snakeskin. Yes. And no. give them to the troll witch doctor. No, Bruce, you returned with six flower petals. You must return to find the seventh. <laughs> but actually, that's another thing I like. I like how everything in this movie kind of ties in, like the idea of, you know, that the flower that he has to bring to the mountaintop and that that's eventually used to make this as part of this fear ritual. And that also turns yeah. out to be the active ingredient in Scarecrow's fear toxin. I, 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 like the, the, I like that everything is nice and enclosed like that. How do you think Christian Bale holds up as Batman compared to Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, and George Clooney? Overall, 
I really, really liked him. I thought he played the Bruce Wayne side of the character really well, and I thought he played the side of Batman really, really well. And I love that he played up being a playboy, which is something that's often dropped from a lot of him pretending to be an irresponsible playboy to help you know mask his identity. The only thing I didn't like is I... I the two things that I didn't like in the performance, and, and one is purely performance-based, and that's just that I think he took that Batman voice a little too far quite a bit. Well, if you think he takes it far in Batman Begins, just you wait. Okay, I'll take your word for it. And then the other thing, and I don't, I don't blame this so much on his performance, on, on the performance, so this may just be a script problem, but I, I absolutely hated every time he tried to do a one-liner. Mm. Just because just, of how serious, like, the movie has a, it should be said, has a more serious tone than the previous Batman films. Yeah, and also, it's just generally sort of a serious Batman. It, like, it, they do a really good job making him this terrifying figure, mm-hmm. but then that keeps getting undercut, you know, like when he bursts his way through that one jail cell. Excuse me, sir. Like, or, yeah. or you, you know, what was it? Can you drive stick? Like, it just. That, I felt that really undercut things. I just find it makes his Batman voice makes it really difficult to understand him, especially during the climax where he's on this, the uh, the light rail uh, train system and it's falling apart. Well, that's the other he's thing. Like, this is the most mumbly movie I have ever seen. Mumble? Everyone mumbles. Not I. I don't think um, Liam Neeson mumbles. Oh, that. You know, you're right, although he does whisper uh, yes. in a sinister <laughs> fashion, which can be just as bad. Right. So, it, and I, yes. and I don't know, if, like, I don't know why that is. I don't know if that was a direction they were all getting or, or what, but I don't, it, it I don't know. Like, I, I, I really wish people would just speak clearly. <laughs> well, it's funny that this film has the scarecrow, because if Batman and Robin would have done better, Joel Schumacher had plans for a uh, a fifth Batman film called Batman Triumphant, where the Scarecrow and Harley Quinn would have been the villains, and it would have had a cameo from the Joker in a hallucinatory sequence. Well, that might have explained the... There was Jack Nicholson at a film festival, this was many years ago, yeah. had actually like said that the Joker is back, and uh, and a lot of people like, what? They're doing it? And maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe at the time they were in talks with him to do the Joker for that flashback sequence, but of course that fell through. Right. I mean, I don't think that even... I don't even think that even got scripted, but, um, you know, it just didn't come together at one point they were considering a, a Batman Beyond live action film. Oh yeah. As something to sort of distance themselves and Batman Beyond was a cartoon about a uh, an old Bruce Wayne being a mentor to a a younger teenager with a more modern a take Terry on, McGinnis. Terry McGinnis with a more modern take on Batman with modern uh technology and more Well it was like, Batman 40 years in the future. Yes. Right. And a very kind of Blade Runner sort of goth style of Gotham City, uh, and just that 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 could be an episode on its own because it is, I think, my favorite my favorite Batman animated series is Batman Beyond. Yeah, but um, okay. One thing about uh, one thing about the the Scarecrow, um, one I don't entirely know why he wants to wear such a terrifying mask. Mm. And and two, he is the most 
doctor that I have ever seen. Uh, uh, Cillian Murphy is Dr. Jonathan Crane. It's like the moment he shows up, oh, well, he has to be a demented supervillain. He acts like a lunatic all the time. He does, and he has that face with the the lips and the intense eyes. It's just, you know, you can never really take him seriously if he plays a... Um, a good guy or something, and of course he's a bad guy in this, and he actually appears in all three films in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, playing the same part uh, each time. But it was it was cool to, to see the Scarecrow in action. Scarecrow is, a, is a, one of my other favorite Batman villains. It was just it was nice to see him realized in this way. I liked the different effects they used of uh, when people got hit with the fear gas. At one point, Batman hits uh, Scarecrow with a fear gas, and you get to see from his point of view what Batman looks like is this really sort of monstrous thing. Yeah, really, it really is like this this devil made of shadows foaming at the mouth. I thought that was a really neat scene. And then you get a scene of um, Rachel Dawes. is She's hit with a gas, and she looks at Scarecrow, and she sees all these maggots crawling out of his mouth and everything. That's sort of gross. Um. Yeah, what do you think about the feel the need to have a, a love interest with Rachel Dawes, his childhood friend? She barely qualifies as a love interest. I mean, they really have no relationship. I guess they don't lay it on as thick as say what the Nicole Kidman character in Batman Forever. Well, like I really, I don't, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's at all romantic because like what whatever feelings they have for each other, I don't feel like romance has anything to do with those feelings. Does Katie Holmes do a good job? No, actually, I liked her. I think she's okay. It's weird that she doesn't reprise the role in the second one. Um, is there is was she just not interested in doing a sequel, or was I she think, written out? You know, they said scheduling conflicts, but it's the same characters in the the second movie, and they reference her in the third movie. So, um, yeah, I don't. I, I, I we may never know the real story, but hmm. for the other ones, they get a different. Um, Actress, they get Mag- Maggie Gyllenhaal. You know, the other thing that I like is that they did they, again d- digging deeper into lesser well-known villains. I was I was really happy that that Mister Zaz was kind of the chief henchman in this whole film. Mm, right, and that's a name a lot of people wouldn't recognize either. No, I think the most exposure he's had is this movie and uh, the video game uh, Batman Arkham Arkhamus. City. He's also in Arkhamus. Oh, no. Is he in Arkham Asylum or just Arkham City? I, I have not played all the way through Asylum, so I, if he is in there, then I haven't gotten to him. But he's in the beginning of Arkham City. He, actually, he's in think? quite a bit of it. Oh, is he? Okay. Well, yeah, there's, there's a whole thread. Like, you, you eventually bust him, but you have to do all these things involving uh, payphones before you can actually do it. And they kind of crop up at random. I think Michael Caine as Alfred is really smart casting. That was an inspired choice. He, you know, the character has a lot of restraint, but he clearly cares about Bruce and about his family's legacy, which you get a few speeches about at the end of the film. Well, he also has just like a nice, it's with him, it's not like dry British humor. He like has an actual wit that he lets show sometimes. Yes, and he has a bit, there's more emotion to this Alfred and the way it's written than in the, the previous films. Yeah, he's not. He's not. He's not as as prim and proper as many other depictions of Alfred. But I think that's very endearing. Did you think you really needed characters like Lucius Fox in this film? 
I uh, I was happy to have Lucas Lucius Fox uh, again because it's I think he's an awesome Batman character that doesn't get nearly enough exposure. And two, it does go a long way to explaining why Batman has all these gadgets. Because like it's it, that's and and that's the thing with a lot of depictions of Batman. It's just sort of his parents die, and then suddenly he's an expert martial artist and has gobs of equipment. And it's just you know part of the, this movie shows why he's such a good martial artist, uh, and and they show why he's got these damn gadgets. Yeah, I, I like the cameo from Rutger Hauer as William Earl, who's the CEO oh, yeah. of Wayne Enterprises. It's a pretty small part, but. The the only I guess the only thing that really hurts the, the hurts uh, 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 the the appearance of uh, Morgan Freeman is is Lucius Fox is he does come so close to just falling into a magical Negro role. Yeah, I mean he's in it briefly. You get Falcone. Is that a character from the comics? I'm sh- I'm sure it is, but it's not a gangster that I'm immediately familiar with. <laughs> you still there? I heard a strange noise. Yes. Yeah. No. I um was. Talking on Skype, fan of the friend of the show Russell. It's his birthday today, so I wished him happy birthday. Oh, excellent! Oh, yes. Uh, Falcone first appeared in a Frank Miller, uh, David Mazzucchelli, uh Batman Year One story in uh, 1987. I see. It's been a while since I've read Batman Year One. It's a very, it's almost like a black and white comic. I don't know. There's like grays and blues. It's a very muted uh, color palette. Actually, I'm just going. I actually took uh, once again my infamous notes. Um, let me see. I've, I've got several points, uh, and this all has to do with presentation. Um, the DVD I watched this on, which was a, a widescreen version of the film, has two strikes against it. First, okay. when you put it in, the very first thing that plays is a trailer for the Tim Burton Willy Wonka movie. Uh, and then two, you can't skip the menu, the the animation that plays before the menu. Is it a really long animation? Well, it's like a montage of scenes from the film, but uh-huh. yeah, it goes on too long. Hmm. I mean, a lot of DVD, I don't know. I guess you don't get the fancy like 10 second long animated menu animation before you can choose something. That That's sort of uncommon nowadays. They seem to make the DVD menus a lot more simple than they used to. Um, Get to the content! Right? No, I mean, what about on DVDs when you pop one in, or Blu-rays for that matter, and you got trailers you can't skip, so you have to set it to fast-forward or push next? That's terrible. And what's what's even worse is when one of those trailers is a PSA about video piracy. Yes. Like, what? I bought your thing! I am the last person you should show (laughs) this to. Right? No, that's true. Um... Oh, here's another here's another note. Uh, one of the gadgets Batman has is a, a little like a beacon that that uh, summons bats. And you know when Batman's in a building surrounded by the SWAT team, he uses that to create a distraction to cover his escape. And all and I just I my note here is I hope the SWAT team doesn't get rabies. <laughs> that is a real epic sort of scene. You really see Batman is uh, letting loose there. Well, no, you get to see. That's another thing that's kind of cool in the movie. You do get to see Batman do pretty much everything Batman does. I love, I love the takedowns. I love, you know, when he, he, you know, the grappling hooks. When, when that one guy, when he like gets him in that grappling hook and is dangling him off the you know, the side of the building, moving him up and down to intimidate him. 
Yeah, that's pretty great. It reminds me of sort of a similar thing that happens in the Tim Burton Batman film near the beginning. One thing I did uh, recall, when this film came out, it was controversial because some uh, Batman fans felt the editing was too rapid-paced and it was difficult to figure out what was going on in the fight scenes. I didn't find that a problem at all. I think maybe they were used to the earlier films had slower-paced editing. And the the fighting in this was very intense. The DVD had a neat uh, documentary on there about they they used a special kind of fight choreography that combines all these like close quarters moves. No, I was I was satisfied with with the uh, with with the actual combat we see in the film. It did it did seem like it had the right amount of brutality on the side of like the criminals, but at the same time. I really do get a sense that Batman was kind of applying the absolute minimum amount of violence and pain to to stop the assailants. Yeah, you don't see him shoot anybody in the head or or break someone's neck. We don't actually that's something I did want to talk about. Um is that one of the plot points in this movie is that, you know, eventually the 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 gunman who killed Wayne's parents are uh, is you know sent to jail, but then he's gonna the he, the possibility exists that he might be released because he's turning informant. Right. And Bruce goes to the the courthouse with a gun intent yeah. on shooting him, but before he can do it, a mob hitman kills the guy. And that I thought that was a great plot point. I mean, I think had Bruce Wayne done that, he might not have became Batman. No, he certainly would have, because one, it gives him closure, uh, and one thing that you cannot give Bruce Wayne is closure. Uh, and and then, you know, two, you kind of get that, it, it helps to explain why Batman doesn't use firearms. Mm. You know, that it's, it's right. the, you know, it's the easy way out for these kinds of situations. It's, it's what the bad guys use in, in the world of Batman. Another thing Batman Begins does, which is so smart, is even though you have a lot of different villains, you have uh, Falcone, you have Scarecrow, you have Ra's al Ghul, the way it sets up, up in the film is almost like, uh, you know, separate levels in a video game, as, as separate bosses you might fight against. Hmm. And that it's not like it's all of them trying to do some wacky intersecting plan. Which he sort was of faces nice. one at a time. Yeah, I think it's nice. It makes it more clear and direct. It sort of solves, even though it's a lot of villains, it doesn't feel like the story is getting too cluttered and muddled. Well, that was, I mean, that was, uh, we talked about this, we reviewed the the uh, the 90s Batman films, is they really did suffer a villain bloat because they would just kind of pile on the villains and smash them together without thinking how. And all the villains in this film exist in the film in a very organic way. Well, and in the 90s Batman films, all the villains had to be so theatrical, you felt like they were trying to overtop each other. And this Batman Begins, I mean, it really lets Batman have a place to shine. Well, that, well, that's you know that's something we talked about in the previous Batman films, and, and really that all Batman films, if someone's told they want to, that the studio wants them to play a Batman film, everyone wants to play the Joker, and so as a result, everybody plays every supervillain as if it was the Joker. Yes, uh, right. And in this film, we we did not have that problem, with the exception of a couple of Scarecrow's more out there moments. I didn't feel like anyone was trying to play the Joker. I mean, the way they strip things down for Batman Begins, it's almost like 
they did that same idea a few years later for the James Bond film, Casino Royale. And that they try and strip things down and make it more back to basics and uh, more realistic. As much as you can say a Batman film is re- or James Bond film is realistic. Where they just tried to do a fresh start and just go with a real sort of serious tone. Because everything is sort of more underplayed and it's not over the top camp. Oh, and although speak, although they don't escape all of those old timey hero versus villain problems, uh, one you know being in particular w- w- turning your back on uh, a hero and just assuming that they're done for. That yes. sadly happens in this film. It does. It does. Bruce Wayne gets pinned over a slightly flaming beam when <laughs> the the League of Shadows sets his mansion on fire, and and Al Ghul just walks away and just kind of assumes that Bruce Wayne will die. That is kind of a lame moment because, like, man, Bruce Wayne is taken out by a flaming piece of wood. Jeez. Well, well the thing is, I'm wondering is like, why? I mean, the, the, the we've seen how efficient and ruthless the League can be. Why does nobody not just? I mean, not stab Bruce Wayne just to make sure that he dies there. Do something to really incapacitate him, or yeah, hit him with, or kill him before the place burns down, and just assume, and then let the fire cover up the murder. They should have lit Bruce on fire. And well, they did earlier; it didn't work. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, let's talk about our website at sequelcast dot com where you can check out not only episodes of the sequel cast, but other shows in the sequel cast network, such as sequel commentary, which is audio commentaries and cult films or TV and video game sequel cast, which looks at video game franchises. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, which we invite you to come check out and like at facebook.com slash sequel cast. And you can follow me on Twitter at SequelCast. And I am at internet mayor. And if you'd like to help out the show, go to sequelcast.com slash donate, donate via PayPal. That helps uh, keep the lights on. Anything is greatly appreciated. And if you want to, you know, watch the film that we're talking about uh, at SequelCast.com, we got links to uh, Amazon, where you can do a rental for. It's usually between uh, like one ninety nine or two ninety nine, and we get a little piece of that too. So that is also appreciated. And you can listen to SequelCast on Stitcher, which is a uh, app. That lets you listen to podcasts streaming on the go. That's right. You don't have to wait 20 years for something to download. Listen to it right there on demand with Stitcher. So get the app at stitcher.com slash sequelcast. And all the SequelCast Network podcasts get added as your favorites. And they are all your favorites. Yep. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes if you like. Just look up SequelCast and pick the one that says SequelCast Network. So back to Batman Begins. Okay, a couple of other. I do have. Uh, let me. I do want to make it clear. I did really enjoy this film, but I do have a, a number of criticisms. One and one of them being the League of Shadows ideology is really muddled. Do you wish they didn't explain it as much? That it would have been more of a mystery, or well, uh, they need a motivation, and yes. so I think you know that that motivation. But I think I, I it probably would have made more sense if they just kind of made it. You know, Al Ghul and the League kind of feel human sickness and that you know there comes a time where you have to call the herd but you know they have this whole thing about balance and then when civilizations go too far become decadent they make sure that they fall uh but then then, like they talk about their methods and how with gotham you know they tried to destroy it with economics well wait a minute does that 
does that mean that they made Gotham a decadent place that needed to fall because they needed a decadent place to fall? Like, I feel like they made their own problem in that sense. You know, if no decadent city exists, they must create one to justify their existence, I guess. But but that just just seems needlessly complicated. Mm. Because if there is no decadent, decadent civilization, doesn't that mean that the balance is being maintained? My mind just exploded into a million bat pieces. And then another thing is they, they do make like repeated references to like Gotham having economic troubles and you know wealth disparity and, and, and crime and things like that. But it only the city only seems to exhibit those traits when they're making those points. Uh, other times, Gotham looks like a pretty decent place to live. They do a better job of that in I think the, the third film, The Dark Knight Rises, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. But yeah, otherwise Gotham looks pretty nice, but it, you, you you know do a close up on a a starving child in the alleyway. And bums huddled over uh trash cans lit on fire. But they only show that like when someone's making a point about oh, yeah, the troubles right. Gotham is having. <laughs> Did you like uh Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon or he he's just he's not commissioner in this one, but Oh no, no, I actually I actually enjoy that and I like that we I like that well, again, I like to think that things kind of change throughout this movie, and I like that he's, he's, was he, he's like a sergeant at the beginning of the movie? Uh, something like that. Police, I believe I referred to him as like police sergeant Gordon or something like that, but no, I like that, I like that, you know, we get to see uh, his rise and how it, how it parallels the, the rise of Batman. And I gotta say, I think they gave, I think they gave Gordon the, one of the best, most insightful bits of, of dialogue in the whole film. You know, which is like you know towards the end when he's when he's saying you know you know when we got when we were issued semi-automatics the crooks just got automatic weapons and when we got Kevlar the crooks just got armor-piercing rounds and now we've got a crazy guy in a mask so what are the crooks going to get now mm. and that really does just kind of sum up modern Batman. Sure, he he has an unfortunate habit of creating villains. He does. It's uh. A unfortunate side effect. I found this interesting. Originally, the actor considered for Commissioner Gordon was Chris Cooper. Huh. Do you know who that is? I've heard the name. I can't place it. He played the bad guy in the uh, the Muppets movie, in the new Muppets movie. Oh, uh, he could have done it. But it's nice with Commissioner Gordon. You get Gary Oldman. It's very against type because he sort of usually plays villains. And that he plays a, a good guy is uh, is nice to see, and he's very good. And you get to see that. I mean, they do such a better job with Gordon in this film. The role of Gordon is pretty perfunctory in the 90s Batman films. It's it's there because it has to be there. I like that Commissioner Gordon does give... Well, Gordon gets to be a, a, a full-on character. I like that we get a little glimpse of his family, including Barbara Gordon. Um, I, and just, I like how unfashionable he is. He's very frumpy looking. He has the the big mustache. I love a, a bit of acting he does uh, at the end of the movie where he's... Is it something like Batman, I think, is firing a missile or he's firing a missile? I think Batman is firing a missile trying to knock... Do, do you recall what I'm talking about at the end? Well, are you talking about before or after he's driving the Batmobile? After. He fires something, like someone makes a good shot and... 
Gordon pumps his fist oh, in a yes. very clumsy way, and it's a it's a neat moment. I mean, the Batmobile we haven't even talked about that. It looks uh, quite. They describe it as a tank, and they're not wrong. It looks like a military piece of equipment. Yeah, no, it is. It's a military prototype. Yep. I don't know. I I I don't like that Batmobile. Is it too I chunky? It's well, it's it's chunky. It doesn't look iconic, and like I feel like they were trying to make a realistic, plausible Batmobile, but I don't think they succeeded. Hmm. I think they created a, a vehicle that is equally as implausible as other cinematic depictions of the Batmobile. They just put it in a really ugly package. It is pretty cool seeing it launch itself across the top of buildings. That's kind of actually that was another problem uh, I had is during the whole elaborate chase sequence where Batman's trying to outrun the cops and, and get uh, and get to the antidote for the fear toxin. Like there's a lot of wanton destruction that he causes that I feel is kind of unmotivated. And, and also like when he runs over the cop car, th- there's no way the guys in the car could have survived that. I know we, that we are shown them having survived, but it just, it seems like at that, it, it just seems like it, 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 it seems like a level of violence. Batman wouldn't actually uh, do. I did find the violence in this film pretty intense for a PG 13, especially at the time. Mm. I mean, you don't see blood, and you know, you aren't, people's heads aren't getting blown off. You don't see, but it, it's just because of the the fighting style. It's so up close and personal, and it it makes it feel like an adult movie. The way they have the shoot the fight scenes, and well, frankly, I would rather it be an adult movie. I would rather it, I would rather it be uh, rated R. You know, I guess so. Yeah, like I would. Well, not even the ratings. Cause I I really. Have a trim. I, I think the the rating system is is horrible uh, and absolutely useless. Um, but like, I don't, I don't want to see. I don't want to see. I don't want to see this kind of movie made safe for kids. I don't think this should be a safe movie. I'm all for like a campy, kid friendly Batman. I love the old Adam West series. But if you're going to do a, a gritty, realistic bat, street-level Batman, god damn it, you need to do it. And you need to make it dark, and you need to make the consequences of violence realistic. See, I don't think we're ever going to see an R-rated Batman movie. Maybe a direct-to-video cartoon or something based off one of well, the Well, maybe, maybe I'll, just, I'll just watch the Batman pornos. That's true. Well, yeah, that'd be even beyond the R-rating, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um... Anything last thing you want to mention about this film? Uh, I I wish we really got to see the Scarecrow be defeated. Yeah, he does kind of disappear, doesn't he? After well, yeah, well, after like he his... capture, he sort of uh, takes uh, Rachel Dawes sort of captive. Well, his, re- his rebreather gets shot off, and yeah. and he becomes victim to his own fear toxin. Oh, that's another thing. I do feel that the league's overall master plan is. Somewhat more complicated than it needs to be, mm, okay. Because like, couldn't they have avoided all this trouble? Because it's a it's a fear toxin in the water supply that doesn't affect you when you drink it, but does affect you when you inhale it when the when like it's turned into things. steam. Yeah. So Encyclopedia Brown has spotted two flaws. One, wouldn't it be simpler is if they just like made like rain catchers or like 
just put just put like barrels full of water on top of buildings and then just heated them up until they produced a lot of steam to disperse mm. this toxin or just use like a plane fly a low flying plane release it and and two so what happens when people wanted to make hard boiled eggs and boiled Gotham City water I guess they'd be dead I mean yeah couldn't couldn't you just dump it in the water and have that be effective yeah well I mean I guess they wanted the whole city to be affected in a particular way but it I just the way they did it just seems very inefficient. The only reason why I have a device is to have a dramatic uh, something dramatic happening, where it's like, "Oh, we're going to set up the bomb." Well, no, and like that—that that I don't mind. It's yeah. just that I think I, I think it could I, it could have been it could have been done better. Again, for an organization that's supposed to be so ruthlessly efficient, I think the plan is just a wee bit too complicated. I think, in all honesty, I think it would have been better if the Joker releasing the fear toxin in the Narrows was actually a distraction for what the League was actually doing. Oh, the Scarecrow. You said the Joker. Oh, the Scarecrow. Okay, yeah, that's true. I did mean the Scarecrow. (laughs) Which is another thing I got to applaud them for, not going straight to the Joker. At the end, though, they do tease it. And I admit, that's a mite bit cheesy. Because as soon as I saw that, where they see... uh, you know, like, oh, this guy is looking for you. He calls himself the Joker. Well, yeah, he says there's, there's, a, there's a, a guy who yeah. a card. Yeah, and there's the Joker card. It made me go, I'd rather see that movie with the Joker. Because the Joker is the, the best Batman villain, or the one everyone knows. That's the, you want to see Batman versus the Joker, which you don't get in this film. Well, you know what? If it, like, I almost feel like that should have been like a little stinger after the credits. Yeah, I don't think you had those stingers that much back then like you do now, though, but right. Oh, yeah, certainly. You would have had, you know, like, the obligatory one minute of credits, and then... And then then Samuel L. Jackson comes out, Batman, (laughs) there's somebody called the Joker I think you should become acquainted with. Or, or, (laughs) you know, a worse way they could have done that scene is uh, Bruce Bruce could have been in bed having his, uh, you know, ritual... uh, Bacon and Swiss cheese omelet in bed, with his with um, his shirt off, eating an omelet, so as masculine as you can get. And Alfred comes, got some mail for you, Master Wayne. And, and I got he, some mail for you, Master Wayne. I got some Wayne. mail. The coming. I got some mail, M- Master Wayne. It looks like you you have some. Uh, looks like you're quite the Joker. Someone sent you some cards, and it's a deck full of jokers. <laughs> And you you you, uh, you zoom in on Bruce's eyes as his brows furrow. And he's like, mm. so, so, somehow the Joker knows Bruce Wayne is Batman. Yes. <laughs> and uh, then it would end. That, that's my terrible version. Why I don't get paid to write anything. So with that, uh, so let's rate Batman Begins. Oh, I forgot to mention the box office. I should probably do that because I tend to do oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this came out in 2005. What do you think... Um, where on the top ten do you think Batman Begins was in two. 2005? Number two. Nope. Number eight. <laughs> in the United States, this is not worldwide, uh, based off box office mojo statistics. I found it surprising. Number eight, Batman Begins. Above it at number seven, Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Below it at number nine, the animated film from DreamWorks, Madagascar. And the number one film for 2005 was Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. 
Oh, oh! I forgot that that came out that same uh, year. Yep, this is all the American grosses. So had I remembered, I probably would have. Yep, that's the one. But yeah, number eight—that's surprising. I think the reason why it's not, you know, in the top three of that year is because people, a lot of people, were turned off from Batman and Robin, and it had been so many years. Uh, no, that's just box afterwards. office. That's not counting DVDs and foreign. Uh, yes, no, no, right. It's not counting foreign box office either. But. So, yeah, one thing that, yes. that kept cropping in my mind, uh, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, which was still in the air at the time, did this thing where they showed the, the thing where, where Batman's in the subway, and you know, you know, you're someone who rattles cages, and then they would cut to a close-up of Batman's hands on a cage with a rabbit in it, and he would start shaking it. <laughs> I'm someone who rattles cages, and they would oh, cut back God. to that. That's pretty funny. I think out of five stars, I would rate Batman Begins mm, four and a half. I think it, it's pretty good. It does a better job with the origin than the past films. I like the villains. I just think at the end, it tries to, you know, it, it leaves the Scarecrow storyline kind of half-assed the way that's finished. It could have had a little bit more of a, a rousing finale because it felt like it was being so intelligent and so different throughout so much of the film and at the end to have it come to a fist fight on a subway as it goes as they're trying to knock it uh, you know off the rails that felt a bit uh, pedestrian but I, I still think a very good uh, excellent comic book movie Batman Begins four and a half out of five stars well I guess I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it three and a half I really did mm. enjoy this film but it's not transcendent it's not perfect it's not it's not great. It's very close to being great, uh, certainly. But I, but on on its on its own, I think for for by my estimation, it's three and a half. You know, in, in retrospect, the way this ends, teasing the Joker card. If they were planning to do a trilogy all along, wouldn't you save the Joker for the third film? That would actually be a cool way to do it. Because you try to, I'm think I was thinking this at, at work, thinking about these movies, and I was like, gee, you know, because in uh, in Star Wars, the original trilogy, you build up from uh, Darth Vader and uh, Empire Strikes Back to Return of the Jedi, he fights the Emperor, and um, and then he fights the Joker in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah, Joker, Return of the Joker, yeah. Um, <laughs> So I don't know. It just seems like to have the Joker in the second out of three films is uh, kind of strange. But we'll talk more about that next week when we discuss the Dark Knight from 2008. Uh, so let's uh, let's pitch a sequel. If we were coming up with our own sequel to Batman Begins, given the way it ends, uh, what would we do? Do you have something ready? Well, I would do. Uh, okay, we got Batman Begins. Uh, I would do Bat Batman Middles. Uh, oh, and in this okay. one, you know, there's Gotham City has had to fight really, really hard to uh, to get all the escaped criminals from this film uh, rounded up and to purge, you know, infiltrators from the League of Shadows. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to go for my for my villain in this one. You know, Batman really has become uh, has become a, a symbol of fear, and it actually is cleaning up the streets, and it's getting harder and harder for crime in any form to like. There are criminals who are have now been intimidated off of the streets. And uh, so someone, you know, someone needs organized crime needs some way to take back the streets. And so they turn 
to a new scientist, a new doctor who's working at uh, Arkham Asylum, Jarvis Tetch. And Jarvis Tetch has found the Scarecrow's research. Now, we all know from the comic books, he's the Mad Hatter. So what he does is instead of using fear toxin, he figures out a way to uh, to engineer uh, a chemical that actually deadens your fear response. It makes you braver, but it makes you braver to the point of psychoses. Like, it, it, it removes any inhibition that might be connected to fear. Uh, it lets you lead a life free of any feelings of consequence, which is mm. pretty terrible. Because right, a lot of these right. criminals will, will do start to do things that they actually regret, to the point where they have to keep taking more of the drug to keep that regret from hitting them. But, of course, the drug also leaves the criminals open to suggestion, which is how Jarvis Tetch ends up taking control of crime in Gotham City away from the few remaining crime lords. Hmm. And so that will be be, uh, Batman Middles. Oh, and that one will end in a thrilling battle atop atop, uh, the Wayne Enterprises Tower. Neat. Where Jarvis Tetch is in full command of an army of criminals. That'd be cool to see. I think if I was doing one, you know, given to where this ends, it's teasing the Joker, it's going towards the Joker, I would simply call it Joker Begins, mm. and have a, a prequel setting up the Joker so that the third film would be the the the, me, the meeting and the sort of face-off between Batman and the Joker. So you got to see what made Batman pick. Now you get to see how the Joker ticks. And I know so little about the comic book, I'm not quite sure the specifics of how they do it. Of the Joker's origin story? Of, yeah, the Joker's origin. I know they've done it different ways oh. in the comics throughout the years. Yeah, J- Joker really, like, more so than Catwoman, Joker doesn't really have a consistent or canonical origin story. They've kind of settled on one that th- for Catwoman after all these decades, but the Joker, they they thankfully have left it amorphous. I think you would, he- if, if I was to do a Joker origin story, I think you would. I would model it after Clockwork Orange in that you would try and build a little bit of sympathy, but the guy is so far gone that you just can't go with him in his decisions. At one point, something will make him break. And he just he, uh, starts going downhill, and the ball just keeps getting bigger. And whatever he hits is uh, turned into chaos and madness. So that's my pitch for Joker Begins. For pitch a sequel. Any uh, sequel news about films or TV that's interesting for you, Thrasher? Well, actually, uh, Bernard Glasser passed away. Who was that? Well, he uh, he was a movie producer. He, uh, but he's kind of most well known for producing a lot of a lot of uh, well known. And I hate the term B movies, but you know, B movies. Uh, he produced Day of the Triffids, uh, Space Master X Seven, uh, Return of the Fly, the nineteen fifty nine version. Hmm. I I loved these movies growing up. I still do love them, but you know, it's it's uh, it's it's he he's kind of uh, shaped a lot of my viewing the viewing of my childhood. I found a piece of news that I don't think was was terribly surprising, but I can see why some people are upset by it. You know, with Marvel owning Star Wars now, um. 
right now the comic books are from Dark Horse Comics, and Dark Horse has had the license, but even though originally it was Marvel Comics that did the original uh, comic books of Star Wars, oh. and in 2015, the uh, rights to do comic books goes to Marvel, which in turn is also owned by Disney. So This year, 2014, is going to be the last year you're going to see uh, new Star Wars comics from Dark Horse Comics. Yeah, I'm actually su- surprised it took this long, although I guess there was a contract that had to write out I think Dark so, Wars. is what it had to be. So, I mean, also, along those lines, I don't know if we mentioned this on the show, but now uh, Disney has the rights to do additional Indiana Jones stuff as well. Yes, and, that's another recent and, development. And before some of that was tied up, I think Paramount still has the rights to the first four. Um, not sure about the old TV show, uh, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. But they won't be able to. They won't be able to start the movies with uh, the Paramount Mountain anymore. It's going to have to be the, <laughs> the Disney Castle, <laughs> with the Cinderella Castle at Disney World. Yeah, he'll he'll always be in <laughs> Germany, and it'll always be what is it? It's a, a Falkenberg, like the Castle of Mad King Ludwig, Neuschwanstein. Mm. Neuschwanstein, yeah. Right, it'll, that's what the next Indiana Jones would have to be. Yeah, I mean, discussing those two things, you know, Harrison Ford is getting up in years. I guess he could have one more Indiana Jones in him. Well, I would, I would love to see him as like a doing sort of more archaeological professory things. And I guess, I guess I would love to see a movie where he gets to ride off into the sunset or has his like last big score. Something to make up for the bitter taste that. Um Kingdom of the Crystal Skull left in my mouth. Well, I mean, who knows? Maybe they could do that one. What, uh, what was it? The Valley of the Gods? The one about the the Monkey King legend of the Peach Oh, yeah. yeah. I would yeah. still like to see that dusted off. I think there's still a movie to be made there. You know, with all the different legends and myths worldwide and all the archaeological treasures, there's no limit with what you can do with Indiana Jones. I wouldn't be surprised if they go for a TV show again. And you could do sort of a, uh, you the know, Jones like a, Squad, where he's a college <laughs> professor with a bunch of sexy young interns, and they have globe-trotting adventures. Oh, like the new Ghostbusters um, that mainly involve him sitting in a plane. You could do that. I was thinking more. You could sort of do uh, kind of like Indiana Jones as a young man, and you have story arcs in there, and kind of be like the Clone Wars cartoon meets Indiana Jones. Um, if you did it right, an animated one could be really cool. If you made it look like an old four-color pulp adventure story or comic book. Yeah, because you could have like a sort of a younger Marcus Brody kind of being his, his mentor character in uh, Solid in there every once in a while. Although, if they do do another movie, I hope they go back. If they, Assuming we can consider this a pattern, I do hope they, they do another biblical reference. Do you think that they could do an Indiana Jones movie without Shia LaBeouf? Without addressing uh, they, Indiana they Jones' without him. I don't see why they couldn't do another. I guess they they would have to put him in a cameo somewhere, I think, if you continue with Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. I mean, I don't think you'd see a film where the old Indiana Jones played by Harrison Ford in a rocking chair like on the TV show with an eye patch saying, oh, I had lots of good adventures, but you never heard uh, this one before. Well, you know what? We should see him lose that eye. That's what we need to see. <laughs> uh, he, he was he was having a retirement party. He drank a Mai Tai. Yeah, he drank a Mai Tai. And, and a little cherry on a sword poked his eye out. Or his new pet monkey had a, a trick with a flaming sword. 
that uh, and the monkey was drinking a Mai Tai as well. That's a and, terrible thing to do with a monkey. Yeah, and he, he missed, uh, waved around the sword and missed and knocked out Indiana Jones's eye. And then Sal laughs and says, <laughs> you poked your eye out. And then, uh, then Sala puts on his rocket pack and flies away. Before giving Indiana Jones a Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> That's quite silly. Um, so do you think the Star Wars comics going to Marvel is bad news? I don't think so, really. I mean, it's sort of nice. That's where it began. That's where it's going back to. I don't think it's bad news, but... Well, okay, I'm going to say that Dark Horse did better things with the comics than Marvel did. Sure, I think they did more of a serious tone for the most overall. And they had a great run, and I'm glad they had a great run. I guess I guess that's the thing. For me, it's all going to come down to whether they're putting out quality comics. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the Dark Horse Star Wars comics I've read. I've read a few of them over the years. I mean, I really like Star Wars Tales, which is an anthology of just nothing but what-if stories. They, they actually did some awesome Boba Fett. Like, I, I don't like Boba Fett. And I, I don't like this badass version of Boba Fett we see so much in the fiction and the tie-ins. But their Boba Fett comics are, are some of the only depictions of Boba Fett that I actually like. In the comics, do they have him speak a lot or no? He, do, he, they don't, he doesn't give speeches, but he speaks. Okay. I mean, but I guess only he speaks, when he needs to. Right, I mean, I guess he speaks in the movie, but it's pretty minimal. It's like the line, he's worth more to me alive. Right. So, as we discussed when we talked about the Star Wars trilogy, I love yeah. the Druids comic they did. Oh yeah, right. Anthony Daniels, I think, wrote an issue of that. Pretty cool. Um, well, uh, what have you been watching? Well, uh, I have uh, actually. Uh, I was very fortunate. I got three classic Doctor Who DVDs uh, around the holidays. And so uh, my fiance and I watched the first of them uh, today. And now, which ones was, did uh, you get? Uh, well, we got uh, we got uh, the special edition, the special anniversary edition of the Five Doctors. We also got the Sontaran Experiment. But today we watched my absolute favorite Patrick Troughton story, The Tomb of the Cybermen. Hmm. I thought you had all the Doctor Who sets. Is that not the case? No, no, I ha- uh, no, I do not. Uh, there, there, there's way too many for yeah. me to have the complete set, and then there's also missing episodes that nobody has, mm. as far as we know. But have all the Doctor Who episodes been released on DVD that are available by this point? Or no. Ah, uh, you know, by now, I, you know, uh, actually, honestly, I don't know. I. Because I remember I back in... I just don't know. Back when we were in college in 2003, you were collecting the DVD sets they were releasing. And well, they, releasing they just them. started coming out, and I got a yeah. great hit start when my brother got me the Key to Time box set. Nice. And that's actually, that's what I showed you with Tom Baker. Right, right. Yep. But, but Tomb of the Cybermen is just a really neat, dark, atmospheric sci-fi story. And which Doctor was that one? Uh, that's the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton. Did you see the uh, recent Doctor Who Christmas special? Yes, yes I did. I did not, but um, what did you think of it? Okay, here's the deal. Uh, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I was entertained from beginning to end, but it had a lot of storytelling problems. Mm. And a lot of, like, 
it was it's 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 uh it's it's uh Ben it's I'm sorry, it's Zoidberg's underwater house burning down. That's what it was. What does that any, mean? Any answer they gave to any question just raised further questions mm. that I don't think were intended. But the Tomb of the Cybermen is great, and unlike a lot of Doctor Who stories, it makes very direct and specific reference to earlier encounters the Doctor had with the Cybermen. Like it is in a lot of ways a direct sequel to the Moonbase story where the Doctor met Zoe. In the Moonbase story, was the Doctor played by the same actor? Uh, yes, that was also Troughton. Uh, the Cybermen first appeared in the serial The Tenth Planet, and that's when the first Doctor regenerated into the second. Okay. And what do you say, like, the the classic sort of ongoing baddies of the series are the Cybermen and the Daleks? Is that right? I'm, I'm going to say the Daleks more so than the Cybermen. Yeah. I don't... I kind of agree with Terrence Dix that uh, who 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 ran uh who ran Doctor Who uh during the uh Pertwee era and most of the Tom Baker era that the Cybermen aren't great they're they're not great villains. Um like the Cybermen have been in some amazing some amazing stories but they've been in a lot of throwaway stories. Okay. And thankfully, thankfully, Tomb of the Cybermen really isn't uh, really isn't one of those throwaway stories. I recently watched The Hanover Part Three, the third film in the series. I have not seen that one yet. How is it? Have you seen any of them? I've actually I've only seen the first. Okay, uh, the second one. That's something we could do in sequel cast later. Who knows? But the second one, I don't think was was like a shittier remake of the first one. And this one, despite being called the Hanover, the third one really isn't about a Hanover. They kind of go for more of a, uh, it's almost more of a, an action comedy, um, focusing on the main characters trying to get uh, change. Wait, not change. That's who he plays in Community. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, was it Kev- Kevin Jong? Is that his name? Yeah, Kevin Jong. But the I was thinking his character was called Chain because that's what he's called. Leslie Chow is what he's called the Hanover, or the part that he plays. Although, yeah, sp- speaking of that, have you seen the new Community? I did. But back to Hanover three, really quick. I want to say that it was surprisingly good. Still not quite as good as the first, but John Goodman is fun in the supporting part. And it's um, going back to Vegas for part of the story. I think really helps things. Cool. I, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, the season five community. The, they aired the first two episodes back to back. And have you been watching Community this whole time? Uh, I actually, I, I did not start watching Community until, like, I think halfway through the second season, but I've been a, a pretty consistent viewer since then. Have you gone back and watched the first season? Uh, regrettably, no. Okay. Um, well, you know, season five made big news of Community because Dan Harmon, who ran the show for seasons one through three, and didn't do season four. Well, he was fired. He was fired. And he also had problems with Chevy Chase. Played Pierce, and now season five, you get a fun little cameo from Chevy Chase, which really surprised me. 
Yeah, that that was like several layers worth of worth of joke for that uh, Chevy Chase cameo. What do you think of these first two episodes? Um, overall, I I enjoyed them. Uh, that whole that whole thing with Abed and a Nicolas Cage class, <laughs> I felt very nervous because I think it's really lazy to use Nicolas Cage as a punchline. But I I like that they used. The, the Nicholas Cage, the idea of a Nicholas Cage class to comment on other actors, which was just so great. You know, what if he's the good kind of bad, like Jean Claude Van Damme, or the bad kind of good, like John Johnny Depp? Depp yeah. And like that was a nice theme. And you know, Abed's uh, Nicholas Cage freakout. I pretty much like that's the only way place you could go. What I'm wondering is, is that class still going to exist uh, in uh, episode three? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I thought that scene was funny. I thought I was a little bit surprised. Normally, Abed, you know, lists so many movie titles and stuff. I thought he would do that with Nicolas Cage, and it seemed like they did that less than just showing him get obsessed. You know, it wasn't an A story. It was like a B or a C-level story. Within Although the I did uh, plot. like that uh, run with Shirley, where she turns out to be a really big fan of the Hellraiser movies. Yes. <laughs> that was a really delightful run. Some sort of half-angel, half-devil, like a centibite. <laughs> I have to make a confession here. I've never seen a Hellraiser film. That would make an... In- well, okay, I take that back. The first four <laughs> would make a really interesting collection of episodes with the sequel cast. Is there like the a dozen? Three or five, depending on how you view things. Oh, Lord. I think there might be a dozen of them. If not close to it, at least ten. And I even had a poster for Hellraiser Inferno, despite the fact that I've never seen the films. Because I like that poster. Is that you inherited from your job? Or? Yeah, I worked for the Blockbuster Video, and um, we could get free movie posters because we had to throw them in the trash after a certain amount of time. So I just had random shit on my walls, even stuff I didn't like, like Blues Brothers 2000. Okay, so when I was in uh, was that when I was in high school, the the seniors, the senior class, we had a student. When I was a senior in high school, we had a student lounge, and that was around the time a Rugrats movie came out. And yes. one of the other seniors worked in a movie theater, so he took their. They had like this giant Rugrats display that took up a whole wall. He moved it into the lounge and set it up there. Hmm. And we gradually removed all the Rugrats until it was just Reptar. Was it the first or the second Rugrats? I guess it was the first. It's whichever one where they have like a crazy Reptar all-terrain vehicle. I've never seen either of those movies. Um, I did watch the TV show a little bit. Because they did two. Oh, are you ready for the Paul Goebel Show Memorial mashup? I am. Why don't you explain it to our listeners? Okay, so I'm going to take... Two impressions, neither one I'm particularly good at, combine them into one impression that is transcendently bad, and Matt and our guests have to ask what that impression is. And it's a combined character. You combine the names to figure out what it is. Hmm. So, are you ready? I am. I know you think you have the crew beaten down, but there's something you've forgotten. I'm an American psycho, and I'm going to be the captain that this boat deserves. You know, what I'm thinking is, uh, I could be wrong, I'm thinking, Bateman Begins. <laughs> where did you get Bateman? The character in American Psycho is uh, Patrick Bateman. 
you know? Also that's played by um, ah, I can't think of the guy's name. God, I'm Christian Bale. You're you're close. Although although you know, Bateman Begins would be a cool one. No, this was uh, this was Fletcher Christian Bale. What's that a reference to? Uh, Fletcher Christian, the uh, man who reluctantly leads the mutiny on Mutiny on the Bounty. Ah, okay. Anyway, yeah. I'll, I'll be the captain this boat deserves. I know you think you have the crew beaten down. At first I thought we were going with that was Captain Phillips. <laughs> about played by the guy played by Tom Hanks, but then he sounded like Batman. And I couldn't think, you know, oh, Batman Phillips. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> we, I'm sure we can combine Captain Phillips with something. Certainly, uh, certainly could. And earlier, I made a mistake. I said there was two Rugrats films. There actually was a third for the crossover with the Rugrats and the Wild Thornberries. So hey, you got your Tim Curry reference for the episode. You can check it off your card. Yep. And yeah, we, uh, that'd be weird to do on a sequel cast, the Rugrats trilogy. Well, we've been looking for another animated series to do. We have. I don't know. Well, we haven't figured out what we're doing after Batman yet. We got three. Absolutely. Do you know? I got a. I was uh had uh, dinner with some friends. We I they actually gave me a suggestion. Oh. They uh, suggested we do Miss Congeniality <laughs> to fulfill our Shatner requirement. Wow, that's uh, that's not bad. I got a suggestion too. My uncle, uh, one of my uncles, Clark, was suggesting. He had the feeling that three uh, Kevin Costner films are essentially the same movie. Which, even though they're not sequels, he thought thematically they'd be the same and interesting to uh, talk about. And what those were, were, one is uh, Dances with Wolves, The Postman, and Waterworld. Hmm. All post-apocalyptic movies, <laughs> all about a savior coming to save a white a white savior coming to save the natives. <laughs> so, so dances with wolves was post-apocalyptic um, after the civil World War Three. Well, after the uh, after the Americans got to the Native Americans, it got quite apocalyptic. Okay, that's a half-formed idea, but that could be. Interesting discussion, even though it's not exactly a sequel. I don't know how we'd work that in. I it would be a weird thematic thing, I guess. It would be a special, maybe, but that, that'd be key. That's like over six hours of movies for a special. I don't know. Food for thought, food for thought. This goes to show that people like the sequel cast and care about it, and uh, that's why we keep on doing the show. So when you get suggestions like that, it's all pretty neat. So, until... Uh, for the sequel cast, I'm Matt. You can follow me on Twitter at SequelCast. And I'm Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter at InternetMare. So tune in next week and we'll talk about The Dark Knight. Yeah, that's the one uh, with the Joker. The more recent one, not the old one. The one with Heath Ledger as the Joker and one of his last roles, unfortunately. Uh, okay, we're going to end on that note, I guess. So, um, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Didn't you get the memo? I want a pizza with pepperoni and extra cheese. The sequel cast is a Hipster Goblin production.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.